Section 17 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Chapter 13. Mark Twain. Part 2. The Prince and the Pauper, which, like Huckleberry Finn, is read with delight by children, is a parable in democracy. Lazarus and Dives, in the figures of two pretty boys, change places, and for once the mighty learn by experience how the other half lives. The same idea is dramatized in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Coat, where the king incognito goes out among the people. Mark Twain hated the lords of the earth. In the Tsar's soliloquy, his hatred is at a white heat. In the course of one of those enchanting monologues with which he entertained his guests, he said that every Russian child should drink in with his mother's milk the resolution to kill a czar, until every Romanov would rather sit on a stool in his backyard than on a throne of crime. He laughed also at the hypocrisy of false republicanism and proved that every Democrat loves a lord and why. Humanity, ridiculous, pathetic and pretentious, is all divided into castes, each caste merciless and snobbish. Its portrait is drawn in this passage from a Connecticut Yankee. Toward the shaven monk who trudged along with his cowl tilted back and the sweat washing his fat jowls, the coal burner was deeply reverent. To the gentleman he was abject. With a small farmer and the free mechanic he was cordial and gossipy. And when a slave passed by with a countenance respectfully lowered, this chap's nose was in the air. He couldn't even see him. Well, there are times when one would like to hang the whole human race and finish the farce. That is written not about a mythical England of the Dark Ages, but about us. The book is a satire on society. Two conditions of uncivilization are thrown into grotesque contrast, primarily for the fun of it all, and also for the sake of flaying priesthood and kingship. The book is not a parody of Mort d'Arteur and it is not cruel. Mark Twain would not have been so witless as to parody a harmless old book. He is not interested in Mallory, but in man, and especially in the conflict between man's intelligence and his superstitions. It is, however, worth noting that like all wise men who chance to give their opinions about books, Mark Twain is a good critic. He touches unerringly on Mallory's weaknesses, his lack of humor, and his inability to characterize. In Mallory, Sir Dinadan, is represented as having delivered a convulsed ballad. But Mallory cannot give the ballad or furnish his humorist with anything to say. Mark Twain seizes this chance to make Sir Dinadan the court bore. Sandy tells the Yankee a story which is taken from Mallory, and the Yankee makes a comment which is a just and compact criticism of that inchoate bundle of legends. When you come to figure up results, you can't tell one fight from another, nor who whipped and as a picture of living, raging, roaring battle, show why it's pale and noiseless, just ghosts scuffling in a fog. Dear me, what would this barren vocabulary get out of the mightiest spectacle? The burning of Rome in Nero's time, for instance. Why, it would merely say, town burned down, no insurance, boy brassed a window, fireman break his neck. Why, that ain't a picture. Clemens was a shrewd critic of books because he was a shrewd critic of men. He was not hypnotized by what other people thought of the good and the great. He thought for himself. 
the essays on cooper and shelley and mr howells are better than most of the work of professional critics some of his casual remarks about books and authors are memorable he disliked the vicar of wakefield because the misadventure of moses at the fair is represented as funny whereas it is a pathetic and touching thing when a boy is deceived clemens had no admiration for jane austen and used to argue with mr howells who adores her most people will agree with mr howells but nobody can forget once he had heard it mark twain's way of putting his disapproval a very good library can be started by leaving jane austen out a connecticut yankee in king arthur's coat has obvious kinship to don quixote both books satirize the ideals of a spurious chivalry don quixote an idealist tilts with facts and is beaten until finally his mind is freed from the dark clouds of ignorance with which the continual reading of those detestable books of chivalry had obscured it the yankee the incarnation of facts tilts with childish idealism and religious credulity and is beaten it has been often said that don quixote gave the death blow to chivalry a statement which carelessly overlooks the fact that chivalry never existed the state of society of which it is the legendary picture has passed before cervantes and if by chivalry is meant the literary ideal that ideal cervantes did not kill for it survived lustily to the nineteenth century the knight of la mancha was product of a library of romance which was never read by greater numbers of people than in the past hundred years it may be that cervantes ought to have laughed amadis de gaulle and all his generation off the stage then we should have been spared those poor modern imitations of a genuine old literature those legends of paper kings and tinsel knights which tennyson and other men of our world having no real feeling for them except in a half-hearted anachronistic way could not make convincing that tennyson should have devoted a lifetime to a masterpiece of such flimsy stuff as the idols of the king which are not of the spirit of the age and therefore not vital and that people should take seriously as a kingly ideal his insufferable prig of a hero show that unfortunately cervantes did not succeed in clarifying the english mind whatever medicinal effect he may have had on the spanish wagner used legends akin to the arthurian for operatic purposes and in his ring he turned the stories into parables on modern society one english poet swinburne tried to make the arthurian story truly tragic by adding to it or imputing to it a greek fate motive of which the old legends are quite innocent in the hands of most other modern poets the ideals of chivalry not being native and intensely felt but merely admired through a misty literary haze are both confused and feeble a connecticut yankee is a humorous jest not at any true ancient manner of thought or any class of fairy tale but at the falsification of history and at idiotic moonshine held up to admiration as serious story and clothed in the grave beauty of poetry not that mark twain was a conscious critic of nineteenth-century imitation romance but like all realists he was filled with the spirit of his time and quite without intention of making romantic poets and other sentimentalists uncomfortable he sends the world of terrific and really interesting facts crashing into the stage world of false moonlight and tin armor the knights of legend as their modern poetic champions portray them are garrulous boobies and bullies their chivalric attitude towards women is a fraud that disgusts a truly chivalrous man the sentimentalist who admires arthur as perfectly lovely and who thinks it philistine to laugh at him will never understand of course that tennyson's ideals 
are commonplace and the laureate himself a tedious philistine nor will they ever understand the great realists moliere fielding cervantes mark twain true chivalry is possible only in those who detest false chivalry mark twain was a supremely chivalrous man a man of exquisite courtesy and of beautiful loyalty to all ancient and contemporary idealisms i have read somewhere the opinion that he was vulgar but the unique cannot be vulgar moreover as puddenhead wilson says there are no people who are quite so vulgar as the over-refined clemens has also been called irreverent he was disrespectful of all superstitions including his own says puddenhead wilson let me make the superstitions of a nation and i care not who makes its laws or its songs either mark twain was a globe-trotter he knew all grades and conditions of man and he was a reader of history and biography he was early cured of the grossest of superstitions abject patriotism with which all peoples are drenched and with which americans especially seem to be afflicted you see my kind of loyalty says the yankee was a loyalty to one's country not to its institutions or its office holders the country is the real thing the substantial thing the eternal thing it is the thing to watch over and care for and be loyal to institutions are extraneous they are its mere clothing and clothing can wear out because ragged cease to be comfortable cease to protect the body from winter disease and death to be loyal to rags to shout for rags to worship rags to die for rags that is a loyalty of unreason it is pure animal it belongs to monarchy was invented by monarchy let monarchy keep it i was from connecticut whose constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit and that they have at all times an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient under that gospel the citizen who thinks he sees that the commonwealth's political clothes are worn out and yet holds his peace and does not agitate for a new suit is disloyal he is a traitor that he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him it is his duty to agitate anyway and it is the duty of the others who vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does that is the mark twain who jokingly said that the only distinct native criminal class in america is congressmen the mark twain who despairingly predicted that america having proved that it was not capable of being truly democratic would probably set up a monarchy in the course of another century and who uttered as blasting an arraignment of american plutocracy as ever fell from a man's lips americans complacent and sentimental do not yet know the power of mark twain's swiftian attack on our flimsy-minded patriotism and religiosity after his death he was slandered by nice critics who purvey optimism and water to the multitude they spoke of his kindly wit and humor which never hurt any one from such libel may he be defended some missionaries politicians soldiers and priests of several churches from rome to huntington avenue boston will if they have read his works tell a different story only a man whose heart is purged of counterfeit idealism can be the lofty idealist that mark twain was he worshipped truth and worthy individuals dead and living his personal recollections of joan of arc is a tribute to a heroine whose nobility is authentic whose good head and good heart are proved by documents it is an eloquent book indistinct with such reverence and passion for beauty as are possible in a soul 
that is not moved by hazy pieties or tricked by too easy credulity the tone of the book is sustainedly perfect the style excellently managed by the same imagination that holds unbrokenly true the character and diction of huckleberry finn after he acknowledged the book everybody saw that he must have written it and pointed to the obvious mark twainisms but when the story was first published anonymously many wise critics failed to guess the authorship in one character mark twain is enjoying himself in his everyday manner in the paladin the comic foil the picturesque liar whom mark twain likes to introduce into all human company the episode in the fifteenth chapter of the second book laughter in the lap of tragedy is one of those wrenching contrasts of human feelings such as only the shakespeare's can draw unfalteringly in the work of no modern prose writer is there wider range than in the work of mark twain from huckleberry finn to joan of arc he had wonderful breadth of knowledge and interest whatever he encountered he possessed and he seems to have turned almost every experience into a written page when at the end of his life he came to write what was to be the best and truest autobiography ever written he confessed in whimsical desperation that he could not tell the truth and never had told the truth that as puddenhead wilson says the very ink with which history is written is prejudice he must also have found that he had already written in his other books as much of his autobiography as it was possible for him to write his books are a record of his career from his memories of boyhood to his last travels around the world he wrote three more books of the desultory type of innocent abroads and roughing it namely a tramp abroad life on the mississippi and following the equator his sketches of travel are first-rate examples of that informal sort of tourist essay to which in their way belong thackeray's cornhill to cairo and kinglake's eothen of travel books there are many of vital ones there are all too few those few are made by great original talkers who find something more or less apropos to say in any scene they chance to visit life on the mississippi is a record in the king's english of the country and types of life made even more surely immortal in the dialect of huckleberry finn puddenhead wilson a fantastic tale is laid on the lower mississippi before the war like mark twain's other attempts to write a novel in conventional form puddenhead wilson is not well constructed it succeeds by virtue of one comic character whose calendar became the vehicle of mark twain's epigrams as he confesses in the introduction to those extraordinary twins he is not a born novelist his account of his difficulty in managing a story will make anyone chuckle who has ever tried to write fiction the book was finished she rowena was sidetracked and there was no possibility of crowding her in anywhere i could not leave her there of course it would not do after spreading her out so and making such a to-do over her affairs it would be absolutely necessary to account to the reader for her i thought and thought and studied and studied but i arrived at nothing i finally saw plainly that there was really no way but one i must simply give her the grand bounce it grieved me to do it for after associating with her so much i had come to kind of like her after a fashion notwithstanding she was such an ass and said such stupid irritating things and was so nauseatingly sentimental still it had to be done so at the top of chapter seventeen i put a calendar remark concerning july the fourth and began the chapter with this statistic rowena went out in the backyard after supper to see the fireworks and fell down the well and got drowned it seemed abrupt but i thought that maybe the reader wouldn't notice it 
because I changed the subject right away to something else. Anyway, it loosened Rowena up from where she was stuck and got her out of the way, and that was the main thing. It seemed a prompt good way of weeding out people that had got stalled, and a plenty good enough way for those others. So I hunted up the two boys and said, They went out back one night to stone the cat and fell down the well and got drowned. Next I searched around and found old Aunt Patsy Cooper and Aunt Betsy Hale when they were aground and said, They went out back one night to visit the sick and fell down the well and got drowned. I was going to drown some of the others, but I gave up the idea partly because I believed that if I kept that up it would arouse attention and perhaps sympathy with those people, and partly because it was not a large well and would not hold any more anyway. Among Clemens's miscellanies are several little masterpieces, The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg, Eve's Diary, and Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg condenses human avarice and human mendacity into a fable that says, There you are numbered, and leaves you laughing and morally naked. Hadleyburg is a town lying on the east bank of the Mississippi River. It extends eastward to the west bank of the river. Eve's Diary is a beautiful piece of poetic prose. It is a joke, of course. The absent-minded Brontosaurus is there to prove it, and the respectable American librarians and library trustees, who, owing to their lack of historical knowledge, objected to Eve's costume and ruled the book off the shelves, made the joke a perfect torture of hilarity. Nevertheless, it is poetry. Eve's effort to gather the stars in a basket is such a conception as only genius is blessed with. The comedy of the sketch appeals immediately to that national calamity. American humor, which never was on earth until after the voyages of Columbus. Many Americans no doubt curl up in convulsed delight at the excruciating fun of the passage which closes the book, but a civilized man will appreciate its tender beauty. Forty years later. It is my prayer, it is my longing, that we may pass from this life together, a longing which shall never perish from the earth, but shall have place in the heart of every wife that loves, until the end of time, and it shall be called by my name. But if one of us must go first, it is my prayer that it shall be I. For he is strong, and I am weak. I am not so necessary to him as he is to me. Life without him would not be life. How could I endure it? This prayer is also immortal, and will not cease from being offered up while my race continues. I am the first wife, and in the last wife I shall be repeated. At Eve's grave, Adam, wheresoever she was, there was Eden. Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven completes the work which satire, science, and intellectual honesty have been engaged in for over a century. It makes ultimate nonsense of the sentimentalist's heaven. Mark Twain's mind was of universal proportions. He meditated on all the deep problems, and somewhere in his work he touches upon most of the vital things that men commonly think about and wonder about. As he once quaintly said, I am the only man living who understands human nature. God has put me in charge of this branch office. When I retire, there will be no one to take my place. I shall keep on doing my duty, for when I get over on the other side, I shall use my influence to have the human race drowned again, and this time drowned good. No omissions, no ark. His was the veracity of an accurately controlled extravagance, a destroyer of false idols, he was an idolater of beauty, especially of beautiful women. He was a man of exquisite dignity, very sensitive and fine, and yet capable at seventy of fooling like a boy. 
the final philosophy of this lover of boys and men and women and cats is as he says a desolating doctrine that is it is desolating to timidity but very brave for those who can square their shoulders and look things straight in the eye it teaches that we have an interior master whom our conduct must satisfy and whom nothing but good conduct will leave in peace it eliminates all extraneous bribes to be good it is like the religion which is preached in a work by another austerior moralist in mr bernard shaw's the showing up of blanco posnet and it bears some resemblance to the human scepticism of mr thomas hardy without studying or caring at all for official philosophy and all the wiser for the omission mark twain came to a position of ethical and materialistic determinism which is rife in the thought of our time and is in one as as old as the greek who said character is fate for his philosophy most readers quite properly care nothing they care for his portrait of mankind and that is the greatest canvas that any american has painted biographical note samuel langhorne clements was born in florida missouri november thirtieth eighteen hundred and thirty five he died in reading connecticut april twenty first nineteen hundred and ten he never went to school after his father died in eighteen hundred and forty seven when he was eighteen years old he wandered east for a year supporting himself by setting type in eighteen hundred and fifty seven he became a pilot on the mississippi the war put an end to that occupation his brother was appointed by lincoln first secretary of the new territory of nevada and clemens accompanied him as private secretary without pay he hunted for fortune in the mines as he narrates in roughing it and found fortune in his pen in the offices of local newspapers a quarrel with a rival editor resulted in a duel nobody hurt and clemens was obliged to leave the state he went to san francisco and worked in the newspapers there for one of them he made the voyage to honolulu described in roughing it in eighteen hundred and sixty seven he was sent by the alta california as correspondent on the voyage of the quaker city the result was innocence abroad of which a hundred thousand copies were sold the first year for the next four years he lectured successfully in eighteen hundred and seventy he married olivia langdon he bought an interest in the express of buffalo new york where he stayed a year then he moved to hartford in eighteen hundred and seventy three he travelled abroad and lectured in london a year later in eighteen hundred and seventy eight bore fruit in a tramp abroad in eighteen hundred and eighty five he put his fortune and brains into the publishing house of charles l webster and company he was the publisher indeed the instigator and editor of grant's memoirs which was hugely successful but the business failed and clemens assumed the debts of the firm which he paid off by a lecturing tour in eighteen hundred and ninety five to ninety six he spent the next few years in europe after his return to this country he lived in new york and later at stormfield in reading connecticut his works are the celebrated jumping frog eighteen hundred and sixty seven innocence abroad eighteen hundred and sixty nine roughing it eighteen hundred and seventy two the gilded age with charles dudley warner eighteen hundred and seventy three sketches eighteen hundred and seventy five tom sawyer eighteen hundred and seventy six sketches eighteen hundred and seventy eight a tramp abroad eighteen hundred and eighty the prince and the pauper eighteen hundred and eighty two the stolen white elephant etc eighteen hundred and eighty two life on the mississippi eighteen hundred and eighty three huckleberry finn eighteen hundred and eighty four the connecticut yankee in king arthur's coat eighteen hundred and eighty nine merry tales eighteen hundred and ninety two the american claimant eighteen hundred and ninety two the one million pound banknote 
1893, Tom Sawyer Abroad, 1894, Puddenhead Wilson, 1894, Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, 1895, Following the Equator, 1897, The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg, 1899, To the Person Sitting in Darkness, 1901, A Double-Barreled Detective Story, 1902, King Leopold's Soliloquy, 1905, Eve's Diary, 1906, Christian Science, 1907, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven, 1909, Is Shakespeare Dead, 1909, Speeches, 1910. Mark Twain's biography in three volumes is by his appointed Boswell, Mr. Albert Bigelow Payne. Mark Twain's autobiography is to be published complete, it is understood, 25 years after his death. Parts of it have appeared in the North American Review. Mr. Howell's My Mark Twain is a beautiful book. An admirable appreciation is Professor Brander Matthews' introduction to the complete edition of Mark Twain's works. Another first-rate essay is that by Professor William Lyon Phelps in Essays on Modern Novelists. End of section 17. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.